Consistent self-improvement, everybody. You are now listening to American Gypsy Podcast. I am your host, Classic, and I'm here with my co-host. Gypsy. And today we have uh, Barbara Pamplin, and she has uh, survived 50 days in the ICU, three open heart surgeries, and three deaths and resuscitation. Fueled by her gratitude and joy for living, she's turned it all into a self-help book called From Fat, Black, and Unlovable to Beautiful, Powerful Love. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. I like to start all um, usually by, of course, asking, where are you from? And tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So um, I was born and raised in Chicago, South Side. And <laughs> um, let's see, I left, well, I won't... Grew up in on the South Side. My parents were self-employed, so I kind of grew up in that family business. Um, we had a kind of a single storefront, a single building with three storefronts. So it was a restaurant, a barbershop, and a beauty supply, which, you know, my father, you know, back in the 80s was such a uh, an innovator. He's like, uh, we're going to change this beauty supply because, you know, the industry was changing. I'll just say that. And he made it a... Um, a fried fish place because you know being from mississippi fried fish was the thing and then he's like huh i don't drink but other people do so let's get this liquor license popping so in the 80s i grew up on the south side of chicago i had to you know family business i had to go there to work and there was um you know i couldn't ring up the liquor but i had to do everything else so people would come in on a friday night and get a case of beer, a bag of ice, and a 25-piece catfish and three large orders of fries. So it was like party in a box. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's pretty brilliant. But that was my, you know, my youth and upbringing. Um, because we I'm yeah. sorry to, I'm sorry to cut you off. That's okay. We've had multiple conversations about Chicago come across <laughs> the show. And it feels like, all right, we need to learn something more today about Chicago. So it's here we it's are. It's been a while, again. but I got you. I can give feel, you the 80 Chicago. Feel free to go ahead and let us know what it was like then. I'm and and even more what you said. I'm from Mississippi. Both of my family is from Mississippi. Oxford. <laughs> yeah, born in Oxford, raised in Jackson. So Jackson, right? Yes. So my parents were from Raymond and Utica, right outside Jackson. Right outside. Okay. And that's where that land is, where we were looking at. <laughs> Let me find out. Was it what was the name of the town? We will talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> we can fill it all in. Yeah. You know yeah what tell us about you know what it was like on the south side. Man, you know, and and it's and it's funny because I talk about this a little bit in my book because you know I go back to those days of youth and it always has an impact. And so the eighties in Chicago, that was kind of when the crack ec- epidemic just just really exploded and it was crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember a lot of, and there was a lot of gang activity, I'll say. So, you know, being on South Side of Chicago, a black owned liquor store, not in the hood, but because when my father first purchased the, the place, the building, um, he purchased it before the reverse of gentrification took over. So it was still a white area around there on 95th and Ashland, for those who um, are familiar. And so, or 91st in Ashland. And so as he came in, he actually pretended to be the fry cook, but he had actually purchased it from the white man who owned it. And they 
they kind of overlapped to transition so he wouldn't lose all the white customers and mm -hmm. like go bankrupt immediately. So they just thought he was there fry cooking, but really he was learning the business. And I say he, but my mother was right there with him. But in that scenario, he was learning the business before it was clear to folks, oh, this black family owns this. And then, you know, so by the time I came around, I was the youngest child, all the clientele and everybody was black. And, wow. um, and of course they sold soul food and all the things. Wow. And um, and so being there and then with the liquor store, you know, we got to see like my father cut hair as well. So he would cut little boys hair. People would bring the kids in, you know, this, was, you know, by this time it was definitely black. And he would see these little boys and, you know, cut their hair every week or every two weeks. And then as they grew up, you know, as we're getting closer into the 80s, you know, all of a sudden they're game banging. But because he had cut their hair since they were a little boy, they didn't play that with him. There was a different respect, even though he didn't condone anything that was going on. And he was just so sometimes so rigidly um, moral to <laughs> be like, damn, daddy, can we just like, you know, not be so. But he was so on that that, you know, they kind of straightened up when they when they dealt with him. And just to see that level of respect that he commanded and, you know being from Mississippi, yeah. of course my daddy was rolling, was packing. You know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> you didn't survive Mississippi in the 30s and 40s and 50s and get out right after Emmett Till was murdered. If you didn't know, you always had a switchblade on you. You always had a gun on you. You always had a blackjack on him, as he called it, and taught us that as well. And so, you know, he um, that level of respect was there. So it was kind of weird. I was like, I grew up in the hood but not in the hood yeah. you know what i mean and so there was a level of respect because i'm like i can't look at you any differently than me because a we both black and b you coming in here spending money with me is helping me go buy the whatever gym shoes i wanted to get or whatever that thing is so there's you know they really taught us to like you're not above anybody because whoever prostitute pimps and gangbangers were <laughs> the regular clientele a lot of times it's like we are no different and i saw them make those choices you there oh you know okay these places but then like two blocks away is the straight projects and people suffering so seeing that all the time was uh was kind of commonplace and the other you know shootings and stuff like that that kind of still happen in Chicago. It's wild. And, you know, it was then, but it wasn't like to the degree it is now. When I was in high school, the most thing that would happen, somebody got in a fight and, you know, it would be like 40 people rumbling and maybe somebody got stabbed, but it wasn't like a mass shooting. Things like that didn't happen in the 80s for me. Mm. Um, but the sad thing is the other thing I really remember, <laughs> there was a time of super rats. <laughs> super rats. Okay. I think I probably remember that then wherever Chicago was famous for big rats. Listen, it was no joke. I, I have a problem. I, you ask my children, you know, they're adults now. I could not for a long time watch that movie Ratatouille. It <laughs> <laughs> was a good movie. Cause I would be like, Oh my God, <laughs> rats taking over. That <laughs> Cause you know, I just, I encountered a few sometimes and it's like, they had no fear and they were the size of cats. Mm. No joke. No joke. I believe so. <laughs> I'm in a safe place now. <laughs> I do remember that as a child, though, that, you know, hearing about Chicago's big rats. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was no, it was not. Mm, it was not cool. I don't yeah, know how Mississippi eventually has some big it was like a massive city effort to get rid of them. Yeah, uh, Mississippi has some some pretty big rats as well. But is that yeah. why my parents weren't that phased? Possibly. <laughs> Seriously, possums. They really look like you know what they, they look like possums. That's how big they were. Yeah, they yeah. talked about possums a lot, but you know, it looked like first possums. First thing I so saw. Like, yeah, when I my visit for Thanksgiving, first thing when we got to my mom's house and just standing outside, and look across the street and there's a possum just walking. I'm like, <laughs> I remember you guys. You yeah. know, walking <laughs> like we was here before y'all was here. With what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's. Chicago is we the guy brought it up uh, the other day one of our guests um about the connection with Mississippi and Chicago. Oh yeah. Yeah. I definitely I talk about that in the book too cuz my parents were a part of that. There was kind of two waves of migrations from the south to the north mm -hmm. and from Mississippi, Louisiana and maybe a little bit of Alabama, it's like Chicago was the destination and what happened was, you know, there would be a couple of family members that went there and you know, found really good jobs, and then they were like, "Hey, come on up," or you know, as the people were looking for a different way to go, you know. And same thing with my parents; they stayed with family, got into those same factory jobs until they could establish, and then moved out and got their own place. And that was how so much, so many of our people winded up in Chicago. So everybody I grew up around, people were either from Louisiana or Mississippi. Period. Mm -hmm. That migration is real. Um, as well as some of the trauma and issues we bring as former enslaved Africans in this country. Mm. Coming from Mississippi, one of the harshest slave states that there were, and being in Chicago, a lot of that trauma st was still with us. But that's a, probably another conversation. <laughs> well, we, we can definitely cover it. Like I said, we're kind of floating. We can feel free to float off track if you want to, and we can oh, come back to Oh, don't tell me that. It. I take squirrel minutes, moments uh, seriously. <laughs> feel free to float off, you know, and we can come back to it. And, you know, so, cause we understand, you know, that moment I, you know, thought is pretty important. And sometimes Absolutely. when you want to just let it flow, you can go ahead and let it flow. But yeah, that's, we'll do. We'll do. I haven't spent, um, I think I went through Chicago maybe for, um, a few, maybe a day, maybe it may have been just for a few hours with uh, some of my relatives for, um, taste tests of Chicago or the taste of Chicago. Yes, so, yes, that was a biggie. People come from all over the place for that. That was the first time I tasted uh, alligator. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, so tastes I, like chicken. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah, it tastes like chicken. That was the first thing. Yeah, it reminds me of the scene from uh, that show on Netflix, The Lucifer, when they finally meet God. <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah. Of course, it's uh, it's the Allstate guy, and <laughs> and somebody said. Oh, that's why everything tastes like chicken. It's your favorite food. Oh. <laughs> oh, I've never seen that. That's funny. Yeah, I like that show. That is funny. <laughs> <laughs> then you have Morgan Freeman that comes to mind as the guy. I mean, they was one step off from having Morgan Freeman play that role. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting yeah, how you think a, about the, the rolling, the sign, or oh, the um, casting competition between that role that in particular particular role or at least having an option to go we can go either with the all-state guy or we can go with morgan freeman but we'll be pretty close to the character that we want <laughs> it's funny how hollywood does that yeah oh you were frozen for me for a second but it looked like we yeah i think up now. you froze up for us for a second as well 
Okay. We apologize. <laughs> Our internet may be tripping around. We're not too sure what's going on today, but yeah, if it frees up every once in a while, we just keep rolling. Yeah. I'll just freeze too. <laughs> <laughs> and then we keep going. Yeah. So we just pick back up where we left off. <laughs> so you say you're in Seattle, Washington. How did you end up leaving Chicago? And what was that Ooh, like? What a journey that was. Um, I left Chicago in 1991. Anyway, I left Chicago, went to Atlanta, went to Clark Atlanta University, HBCU. <laughs> And um, and I stayed there for about eight years. I got my undergrad degree, had a baby, and then got my master's degree. You know, I decided to collect up while I was in the, in the state. And then I went to New Jersey after I finished my master's degree. Um, stayed there for about four years. Then I went back to Atlanta. I don't remember how long I was there, maybe four years or so. And then moved to Seattle. And each one of these moves, you know, I'm chasing a check. I'm following the job. Oh, you want to hire me and move me? Okay. So <laughs> so I went, you know, kind of like those army brats. I called my daughter, especially because she was rolling with me from the beginning when I was still in um, an undergrad. She's kind of a corporate brat because, you know, we went where the checks were, <laughs> which is what led me to here. I had no interest in being in Seattle. I was like, are Black people even there? But, you know, there are not like in Atlanta or Chicago or Newark, but, you know, they're here. And um, but, yeah, it's been a good experience. I'm not done yet. There's going to be another stop because I can't not retire here. I just had to, you know, wait till this last kid gets out of high school. But um, but it was always for uh, a better opportunity or, or a job or, you know, just to um, to kind of expand. And I had no problem with moving when I look back and understand why, you know, if my parents hadn't had that tenacity to move out of Mississippi, because first place they went to was Ohio, but then that mm -hmm. wasn't giving them what they needed. So then they went to Chicago, you know, and although there is a massive, um, that massive migration from the South to the North, it still took a lot for them to leave their family. And, you know, my mother grew up on the same plot of land that several generations before mm -hmm. our ancestors were enslaved on. It was still, you know, it kept, they were able to keep it in the family. I don't even, I'm still learning this background story behind that, mm -hmm. but that's significant. Like you go back five generations and the woman that was enslaved by the slave master that gave birth to all of the people that resulted in my mother we we're on the same land. So to make that move was was a lot for them. And I'm thankful for it. But I think it gave me and I don't know if, if that's how we're using the, your gypsy. But for me, yeah. it was like, I need to move where there's opportunity, and where I can learn and grow and flow. And so I still have that. And I think my kids might have a little bit of that in them too. Yeah, that's definitely why I got the nickname gypsy is because I, I moved around a lot. Um, I was born in um, LA, but I was raised in Ethiopia. Um, my oh, parents wow. were Eritreans, but I moved to Minnesota when I was 10 and then lived there for eight years, then moved to Atlanta for about seven years. That's where we met. And yeah. then um, mm -hmm. uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia, another four years. And then now I'm in LA. So, and I've traveled a lot around the world. So that's kind of how, um, 
the word gypsy. Like we're not scared to move around. We yeah. we like experiencing new things. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's so important and broadens your understanding. I was talking with another guy and he's like, you know, with that move, but moving like that, it must give you a different perspective of humanity. And it does, because when I step back and look at all the places I've lived, there's a common thread, but also there's differences. And so it kind of trains you to see what's that common humanity thread in people. And to your point, even traveling outside of the country, we don't even have to speak the same language as long as I can tune in on yep. the humanity in you, sign language, pictures, smiles, thoughts, all of that can get, we can still communicate. We can still get yeah. there. Yeah. Although it did mess my head up one day. I was traveling this when I was in corporate and um, I think I was in the airport in Amsterdam and this black woman walked up to me and she's speaking another language. And I'm like, I, I don't speak that. <laughs> so she switched to another language and I'm like, I don't speak that either. <laughs> she switched to another language. And I recognized that when it was French. Mm -hmm. well, I'm like, I don't speak French. And then she came to English and I felt so like a dumb American. <laughs> I was like, yeah. she's switching up like a freaking translate app. And I'm sitting there like, I don't even know. And all she wanted to know is why the plane was delayed. <laughs> yeah, That's very common where I come from. Like most, most yeah. people know like several languages. And I I'm need like, to know another language yeah you know it's like we grow up here we barely english is just weird period but yeah we should definitely know that's again languages. when you go outside the country and outside your comfort zone it's like wow like we have the superiority complex in the u.s but nah you are not yeah. you're not that and it's funny to look at it as i even look at it now it's like why and i think it's even more of being blessed as well, being in the U.S., you could say that some of the other circumstances where people are kind of forces them to have to learn two languages. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Colonization to begin with. I guess even looking at myself, like, you know, the discipline wise to completely learn and master language, you know, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely in a bunch of environments with, you know, where I can pick up or use the language. But mm -hmm. it has been my lack of discipline that has stopped me from mastering another language. And it's also because I have not been forced to have to, you know, learn a language mm -hmm. just to communicate or just to even get a job or just to do certain things. But, you know, so I, I can true. see that may be one of the reasons why a lot of us, yeah, you know, we don't as far as know. Like, damn, we gotta, we could at least do Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in LA. I'm like, I'm supposed to, you know, and I've you know? start the book, but I just, you know, it's like, come on, complete it, complete it. It's like, you don't talk to people enough in Spanish, so you don't need it. And that's the subconscious. It is a hard lot of time. to yeah. learn it after you're grown, though. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the only reason I know uh, several languages is because I knew it from birth. So right. it's just a lot easier, but learning, I've tried to learn like French and Arabic, you know, as an adult, and it's hard to keep, you know, the discipline. And if you're not immersed in the language, in the right. country. So I told myself, you know, when I go to that country, I'll spend extended period of time there to learn it because it's really hard to like teach yourself or, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, was it Duolingo and Rosetta Stone can only yeah, go so far. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, gotta you need the conversation. 
And a lot mm-hmm. of times when it's time for me to practice it with someone else, it's like a nervousness and you freeze right. up and you don't know what to say. And it's like, yeah. ah, you know, so that's one of the but things you got to try. But that's the thing about little kids. They'll give it a try and, and maybe even maybe even butcher it up, but they're going to keep trying until they get it. Until yeah. what they're trying to communicate is gotten across and they get whatever need that is met. <laughs> and, uh, and to your point about immersing. So I spent... Back in 2017, um, before all of the, right before all of the stuff that, you know, you kind of mentioned in my, in my intro, I spent three weeks in um, Salvador, Bahia, Brazil. Mm. And for one week, I was with, for the first week, I was just, I went by myself. And then in the second, the, the next part of it, for the last two weeks of it, I was with a group. So we were traveling and doing things together. But that first week that I was there, I had like I had my Google Translate app and I had been practicing on a Duolingo just so I could know basic stuff, like be able to say I don't speak Portuguese (laughs) or that I'm American or to ask for things like I had that basics. But what I noticed is after the first week and then after the full three weeks, I was able to communicate some of those things a lot more fluidly than when I first got there. And I was actually starting to learn more. And I was like, oh, this is what that immersion does, because if you're trying to order some food, you won't figure it the freak out yeah. <laughs> or somebody like and numbers are universal. And I would tell, I, I learned how to say, I don't remember it now because it's been a while, but when a waiter or somebody wanted to sell me something on the beach, I would learn how to say, write down how much it is because a four is a four in every language, you know, unless there's another way to write numbers that I haven't found, but I don't have to translate that. Just write it down. So I know what I'm, what I'm dealing with. And so, you know, just finding those ways to figure it out and work it through, it builds you in ways that, you know, just everyday living can't. You got to have to have a little courage and a little vulnerability. Yeah, Yeah. I had an exchange student um, from Brazil when growing up. Our family, of course, we grew up in Jackson and West Jackson, which is, you know, basically the hood. But we were, my mother was, parents were a little different as well. My mother was, so we had an exchange student. to stay with us and then i went and stayed with him for a year in mississippi really in jackson mississippi <laughs> That's what yeah. I he got he Yo, got the your experience. mom was real different yeah advanced like next level that's dope yeah and <laughs> my brother and i we also play the cello <laughs> yeah so <laughs> yeah we grew up in the orchestra you know very different you know so i spent when i went um when i was 15 i went to brazil for a month and wow. like those small words still stuck with me, even though I lost some things, you know, from mm-hmm. like you said, when soon as you said, it's like, oh, my God, I know how to say that, you know, no follow Portuguese. You know, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing that stuck with me. Yeah. But so, yeah. yeah. Oy, what part of ball. Brazil did you go to? I was uh, in Araras and it's about two hours west of Sao Paulo. Yeah. OK, Araras. got you. Yeah. I'm acting like, yeah, I know where that is, but yeah. A lot of people don't. Yeah. Most, even a lot of Brazilians don't know where it is. You know? <laughs> so but that means you got a for real experience. Oh yeah. It was, man, it's still, I still have to go back. Yeah. We, yes. We're probably planning to go back this year yeah. sometime. He keeps stabbing at me on when I'm coming, but yeah, it's, it was, yeah, it was a priceless it, experience my brother got a chance to go and you know like i said i didn't speak the language either but it was still that shining of you know american mm-hmm. american and you know so 
The one of the things problems. that stood out to me that was so amazing, like I knew that, you know, for me being in um, Salvador Bahia, that that was kind of the epicenter of slave trade. And they, for much longer than it was in the U.S., you know, they started going to Brazil a hundred years before they started bringing the slave ships to the U.S. And, you know, things operated differently. And so they kept a lot of their African culture and you can see the influence of it everywhere. And and it would always amaze me because people would walk up to me speaking Portuguese. And when I would tell them that I was American or I would say that I don't speak Portuguese, but they could clearly hear my accent, they would be like, Americano? <laughs> so I looked like them. Yeah. They yeah. thought I was one of them. And the reality is they are and we are because, yeah. you know, it could have been the same family on the shores of West Africa that got taken to two different slave ships. And so ancestrally, yeah, you are my cousin. And I'm sure that happened a lot. And just have walking around with that reality was just so powerful. Like this is a whole nation and they all look like me. Not like what you picture when you think about Brazil and and Rio de Janeiro, but like Salvador, they black, blackity black, black. Right. Like for real. It was the same thing in Peru as well. Like I was surprised at how many um, people look like me. If you go to some neighborhoods, it's a lot of them. So, yeah, there's a lot of influence down there. That's why I don't subscribe to that term minority. We are not the minority. No, only uh, if you keep dividing us up. I don't even use that. You can go to the south right now and even just type in, you know, what's the population of Jackson, Mississippi, or what's the population of this? And they're going to give you the numbers. And it is, don't look nothing like a a minority type of place. So, and then when you start looking at that globally, yeah, dude, they got us duped. Nah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm talking about the numbers definitely don't match. And even something you mentioned earlier, I guess, to go back to the family um, history, you said you were going back into generations to see. And we, all, we also did that um, with my father's family to mm-hmm. kind of just see where some things were going. And yeah, we still had land back then and there's this kind of similar story which is weird that you know the slave owners gave us the land and it's like okay we're missing something here yeah yeah Where man i got some questions go? out to some relatives now like what what was in there what 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 was that what, what was happening <laughs> right because that's i guess as i think about that now you know where did I guess they say if they passed, if the, the slave owner passed away and left the land, and you were or or our family members were either sold or given, then how did we get the land? Where was the okay the the sympathy that okay we're at least gonna give you the land? We like that. That something doesn't make sense there. Yeah, and we even. I, for my particular family, because my uncle, my, one of my great uncles did the research and mm-hmm. he explained that he learned as an adult why our, we weren't really um, able to, why they, why they weren't able to go see the burial sites of, you know, the grandfathers and things like that or their ancestors. And to come find out as an adult that our family members were buried in the same family, uh, same um, cemetery where white people were buried. And they were trying to do the math because to be buried where the white people would be buried, you have to be quite a high status. And a lot of even 
the lot of the families, the names and the streets in Oxford, a lot of them are some of the families that's still there in the city. You know, so it's it, it's a mix up. It's a it's a weird. There's an aspect to history. the history that we're not being told. Yeah. And yeah. that's why we're kind of trying to piece it together by asking a lot of elders. Who sold you um, the land? Yeah, just mm-hmm, what was going mm-hmm. on. You know, if the story wraps up to what they say the story was, then how did we get the land? Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of, like, my father, I talked to him, the mother's past, my father is still with us, and unfortunately he has dementia, and so for him to go back to being five years old in 1939 is very easy for him. And the memories are vivid. So we talk because it's comforting to him. And I learn stuff. I learn so much that as a kid growing up, he would have never told me. I say you should (laughs) record those conversations if you can. Actually, that's a smart idea. It is something that I did that with, with the conversation I had with my great uncle. And mm-hmm. I'm able to go back and listen to it, you know, and still listen. Little things I missed here, little things I missed here that he said that definitely connected some dots F- emotionally yes. tra- traumatized from I can look at my father's, you know, life and see, you know, some things differently. And, right. you know, it's it. A lot of us now. And what's funny. Is that I can care about it. But the rest of my family, certain members, oh. yeah, nobody really cares. They don't, is, there's not That's enough true. time. We haven't had enough time to really kind of, uh, certain people haven't had enough time to really think about it and dive into it and see, you know, where your family go back to, what your great-grandfather did, what your great-great-grandfather did, and, you know, mm-hmm. how things, how the land shifted hands or how you how our family left from over here and came over here like you said mm-hmm. you left mississippi like there's a story went up to Chicago, behind all of it and there's a reason there's a fear there's a hustle there there's a secret you know there's a lot of things in in the uh, the history or at least mm-hmm. just knowing the land basically <laughs> and the, the the stories that land can tell um so before i go there i just want to say in reference to that, um, you know, there's other family members that aren't interested. There's always like, that's your charge. Yeah. That's your, that's the thing that has been given to you because there has to be someone to keep the ancestors alive. Because the reality is, man, if they didn't survive this, what they survived, we wouldn't be here. And not one of us, I can't stand it when people say, I'm not my ancestors. No, you could never be your ancestors because they survived horrendous conditions, but still found a way to have babies and nurture them so that more babies could be born. So your ass could be here. So we got to honor and respect that. And, you know, we're taught conditioned to not, but there always has to be someone that's going to keep it alive. And that's going to expand it and give light to it, especially now, because we've been going through things as black people, as black people in this country, as black people on the planet, as humanity with coronavirus. Like we need to go back and understand some things on how we got here, the good and the bad. So I commend you 
and I'm thankful that you're doing it. And we're going to talk after this because both of our peoples from Mississippi, somebody knew somebody. This is not an yeah. accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's very possible. <laughs> like for real. <laughs> somebody, I met know. this one woman who was from Chicago. She moved to Seattle and I met her here. She worked at a tech company. I worked at a tech company. We both wind up in kind of the same spiritual organization. And as we were talking, turns out, because she got into doing her family history, and she's like a good, she could be my daughter. She's like way younger than me. Her family was in a plant on a plantation in Virginia. And part of my paternal family was on a plantation next door in Virginia. And somehow both wound up in Mississippi. And so um, kind of our, I practice uh, African spiritual, um, African spiritual system. And our Oluwa was like, huh, your ancestors might've ran away together. I was, we, we were like, because there's too many coincidences <laughs> and it's weird. So we need to research that some more. But things like that happened. Yeah. Wow. Today I saw um, a post by on Instagram by Lil Duval with, you know, and it was like the, a duck that was turned over mean mugging and it was saying, you know, right when you get comfortable, Harriet Tubman comes in and say, we leaving tonight. <laughs> and, and that was, the, it was like the face that was on. And I had to think about that. It was like, yeah, but you have, you know, two, it's two sides to that story. It's funny as you think about that for those that left and those that stayed there. And it's just, yeah, it's definitely two sides to the story. And even how you mentioned and I had to think about it, like, because now a lot of people use, I don't want to reproduce because I don't want to bring a child into the world that we're living in. But mm. back then, they were still being romantic and still reproducing, bringing kids into loving, this world. Even though yeah. it was going to likely result in. Uh oh, I'm sorry, you froze. No. Uh oh, you froze. Oh, for we're a second. Back. Okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh man. Why is it doing that? Uh oh. Sorry. One, we'll get it one second. Thirty-four minutes in and they want to act like this. Okay, okay. Are we here? Yes. Yes. All right, here. we're here. We're here. We'll keep going. Okay, where were we? They tried that's what the internet did, tried to get us sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't gonna work. Um I don't know. I lost track, but we were just talking about the people's ancestors was taking over. Being <laughs> still being like, romantic. Yes, they were still being romantic. Oh yeah. Still peaceful. having babies. Yeah. Yeah. And still being still peaceful. Loving. Yeah. And that was just to think about that is like, man. Yeah. Different breed. Completely different yes. breed. Grateful for all of it. Like you said, some of us, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to to, you know, make it in that time. Mm-mm. Yeah. Like what kind of strength must you have to endure that and and find a way to to continue to exist within that and still and still be, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot that's why there's so much trauma and things that we still to this day as a people have to work through because that trauma doesn't just go away. Epigenetics says it comes with us to the next generation and the next generation until it finds a resolution. Until folks like you or folks like me say, okay, what did my people endure that I'm here to help them get through? 
all of us get through. Because mm-hmm. that's why I'm even thinking about it is because they put that thought in my heart. They put that thought in my mind to say, damn, we here for a little bit more than the freshest gear and, you know, turn it up. Yeah. <laughs> Although yeah. that's a part of it because they didn't get to do that. So, yes, we need to enjoy life, too. Yeah. yeah. But you have but to break the it. generational trauma and the, the cycles or else you just keep repeating it until. <laughs> and it has made so us the strongest, breaks. some of the strongest. It still yes. has made us some of the strongest, especially with your story. I guess yeah, we, we do get, want to get, get into, into that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah. Let's get into that. Before we they, led with that, and the I'm internet like, is what? like, it's too good. Let's, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and to like all of that that we just talked about led to the thing. So it was like it all is all relevant because all even the ancestral part, the stuff from Chicago, and all of that, it all led to that moment when this this the thing happened that had me in the hospital for 50 days and going through that. Mm. And now it's like part two of that journey that now I'm aware of it. It's like, okay, what you going to do with it? Mm. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What you going to do? So, I- <laughs> so what did happen? Uh, why were you going through all of that? So um, I had what's called an aortic dissection. So I'm just minding my business one morning, coming out the bathroom, and I just felt a sharp pain that felt like a lightning bolt hit me in my chest, went, traveled through my body, out my rectum, and back around again, and kept cycling. And I was like, whoa, is that a heart attack? What the hell is that? And so can I went through the mental check, because I, I, I have a lot of heart conditions in my family that, um, and I say that like that, because when you have these things that are... Um, you know, they say they're genetic or things that run in your family. That's a thing to look at closely. What is that? Not just from a physical perspective, but spiritual and energetic. What is that that's trying to find resolution? So I had a lot of heart stuff in my family. So I was like, this doesn't seem like a heart attack. I'm, I'm, I don't feel like I'm having a stroke. (laughs) Like I'm diagnosing myself. Right. (laughs) And and so I get on the floor and uh, my husband at the time was outside. And so I knocked on the, on the wall to get his attention and he comes in and he's like, what's going on with you? Like, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I'm like, I think I got gas. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about what was happening in my body now that I know, and I'm like, I thought I had gas. Side note, Black women, understand, own your pain and voice it. We mm. don't have to be strong for everybody. Mm. I was so disconnected from my body and really being able to say I'm in distress. I really didn't recognize it. And to this day, when I go to the doctor, I have to be like, all right, let me actually go in because I may have been tuning some stuff out. So that's a side mm-hmm. note. Um, that's a very good point to make, yeah. though. Thank you. It's Yeah, and it's it, it helped save my life on multiple occasions throughout this process. Um, so he said, you know, should I call the ambulance? And I said, I think it's just gas. I literally said, don't call the ambulance. I think it's gas. But at one point, he said I was talking to him and I stopped responding. I didn't collapse. I was just zoned out. He looked in my eyes and it's like I wasn't there. And I have no memory of any of this. Mm. The next thing I remember is waking up, laying across my bed with my husband and four white men in my bedroom. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And he had called the ambulance and the first set of EMT came and they saw that. And obviously it had a conversation with me that I don't remember having. And they felt like it was something cardiac. So they called for the cardiac um, 
uh, EMT. So that was a two set. So I had like a regular emergency uh, ambulance drivers, and then I had the EMTs that specialized in heart issues and conditions. So they get me to the hospital and um, give me pain meds and give me something for indigestion, test to see if I was having a heart attack, a stroke. It wasn't any of those things. And then the, before I was about to be discharged and they had already started the paperwork, the doctor was like, okay, so where's your pain level now? Cause they, you know, they gave me the, the meds, uh, I think probably through an IV. So it was supposed to work really quickly and they were really powerful. And when I gave him the number, you know how they say, where's your pain from one to seven or one to 10? And it was still high. And he was like, huh, it shouldn't be that high. You, you just gave you a lot of medica medication. And another side note, I'm thankful for that doctor because he listened to me when I said I was still in pain. And I'm thankful, even though we're divorced now, I'm thankful to my husband because he wasn't going to let them just say, okay, yeah, she'll be all right, go home. So then when I said that my pain was still where it was, he said, you know, let me do one more test before we discharge you. I don't think this is what it is, but let me just be sure. And he pulls out a Sharpie. And again, I don't remember a lot of things, but I remember him pulling out the Sharpie and drawing on the sheet next to me thinking, damn, he just destroyed that sheet. But he drew a picture, an uh, image of a heart and an aorta, and he explained what an aortic dissection was. Because, you know, no one knows their anatomy for me to even know what that was. Right. And when he explained it, and you know, aorta is like the tube that comes from your heart. And this is in my words, the tube that comes off of your heart to pump blood everywhere else it needs to go. Every organ, every artery, everywhere it needs to go. And that's a tube that's made of three layers, like a toilet tissue two-layer toilet tissue, two-ply. Mm -hmm. This one is three-ply. And for me, my dissection, the inner layer of my aorta tore. And with that opening, every time my heart pumped blood, blood went between that first layer and the second layer. What's supposed to be like a single-barrel shotgun became like a double-barrel shotgun. I can't even do that with my hand. Mm -hmm. And um, aortic dissection is 99% fatal. Few people make it to the hospital, and when they do make it to the hospital before dying, they get misdiagnosed and die. And so, only one percent of people survive it. I found that out later. And um, but he didn't think that that's what I was having. He just did the test just as a you know a little throwaway. Let's just see if that's you know just to rule that out before you go home. And uh, my husband was talking to him because he was a chit chatty guy, and uh, he said the doctor got the phone call. He answered it with my test results and his whole face changed. He got, the white guy got pale and got real serious. And he was like, okay, we need to go into another room. And so we went into, I don't, I, I guess I was like, well, in ER, you kind of like in these gurneys and, and set up in a different way. So they actually took us into a room where I was about to be admitted and explained what I was having and that it would be require an immediate open heart surgery like now. And it was going to be a 10 hour surgery and there was a 50 50 prognosis of whether I would make it through the surgery or not. But it wasn't a choice of whether to have it or not because I wouldn't you know, make it through the night. And so it was like, damn, okay. I just remember thinking we got to call the kids. And so called both the kids and I just told, we just told them, you know, I had a checkup and I just had to have a little procedure. So I'll be, I'll, I'll be good and uh, love you. I didn't want them to worry. I didn't want them to have that weight, but I wanted them to hear my voice one more time and I wanted to hear theirs. Yeah. So I went into the surgery, <clears throat> survived it. What the surgery was itself, it was basically reducing my body to a corpse. 
removing all of the blood into a bypass machine, lowering my body temperature to about 14 degrees for about 30 to 40 minutes of that whole 10 hour period, my body's just there. And, um, and so they had to remove the part of the aorta where the tear was and replace it with this synthetic material called Dacron. So I have like a, I have a, a synthetic material tube attached to my heart and attached to the rest of it. And when I dissect it, that double barrel went up into my carotid arteries and all the way down into my iliacs and to, towards my kidneys. And so it was like from Naruto to the tutor. Mm. And hopefully y'all can be okay with me being funny about it. Oh, like, yes. You're good. That's Very what funny I about see it, it right yeah, now. That's good, that's though. That's great. That yeah. you're positive about it. Yeah, energy. It's a bit, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, we're here. Right. And I'm thankful I made it through that. And, you know, that's where my my understanding through that experience, my understanding of something greater than me and of ancestral energy, because they was like, nah, you ain't going. We don't want you here yet with us. You still got shit to do there. We need you there. And that's the feeling when people ask me, what was it like? Because after that, after the initial surgery and, and surviving that, my heart stopped about a week or so, 10 days later. Mm-hmm. I had recovered. I was walking around the ICU. You know, there's a whole process to recovering from open heart surgery. I was in kidney failure because my kidneys weren't getting blood or oxygen. And so I had to have dialysis every day. And freaking shout out to diabetes patients and kidney patients that have to get dialysis every day or any time because that is the most strange, evasive feeling ever Mm -hmm. to have your blood leave your body, go through a machine, get cleansed and come back in. It's not painful, but it's it's somewhat painful. And every time I did that, I just I had to do it. I just kind of panicked in the in the in the hospital room. But and so going through all of that, um, I was a couple of days from about to get um, discharged. And I'm walking around and I'm talking to my husband on the phone and a friend of ours in New York. And they said, and I went into the bathroom. I remember this much. And I literally had that on my son's Christmas hat. <laughs> Cause this is like, by this time it's almost November. And uh, they said, all they heard was the phone hit the floor and they kept screaming my name and I wasn't responding. And then they heard nurses saying, Oh my God, cold blue, cold blue. Did she break her neck? Where's all the blood coming from? And so what happened is I was in the bathroom, my heart stopped. And so I collapsed. And when I collapsed, I hit the wall and slid down. And when I hit the floor, I bit my tongue. So that was all the blood. And when I slid down in the emergency, um, there's an emergency cord to call the nurse. My body weight pulled the cord. So they Mm. came in immediately. Now tell me if that wasn't somebody saying, okay, we need to make sure things go a certain way. Um, So they were working on me, giving me manual CPR because I just had the open heart surgery. So they couldn't use paddles to bring me back to get my heart beating again. By this time, my husband made it there and they was like, oh, it's been 20 minutes. Should we call it? And he was like, no, you're not going to call it. Thankful for that. So they kept trying. And I came back. I say I came back or I was sent back. I don't know which one. And then about a week or so later, it happened again. This time I was in the bed. It was in the middle of the night. The nurse came in and was asked, because, you know, you're in a hospital. There is no rest. Someone is coming in every two hours, especially for me. I got um, blood work couple times a day I did uh they did a chest x-ray every day they came into the room so all these things that happen every hour or two when you're intensive care so he came in he's like are you okay and I and 
I said, I feel horrible. And I say this because I read my medical charts. I don't remember this. Um, my medical records from that day are about 600 pages. Mm. And, um, and then I collapsed when I said, no, I feel horrible. I collapsed into the bed. CPR, according to records, it took about 25, 30 minutes to come back again. And this time they said, we got to get her back into OR. So opened me up a second time, removed a blood clot that um, they think was the thing that, that caused my heart to stop beating. Checked everything, closed me back up. This time, I believe this was the time they had to add titanium plates to my chest because two open heart surgeries and a lot of manual CPR, everything was weakened. Mm. And so I still have them today. Uh, when I go to the airports, I'm like, yeah, things are going to be. <laughs> wow. And um, and so this time I knew what happened. They explained to me between the first and second times, I just thought I went to sleep one day and woke up the next day. I didn't I didn't know what happened until um, they explained it to me. And then. So now I'm kind of and every time this happened, I have to start over with recovery. Mm. Um, and. It happened a third time. This time I felt it coming. I felt myself dying. I felt myself leaving my body and I was able to say it's happening again and I don't want to die. And um, and it was in the daytime and my husband was there when it happened. And my surgeon had just left my room from doing his daily check when it happened. So it was all hands on deck. Um, I mean, every time it, it was, it definitely, you know, all of the cavalry would come in. But this time I was a participant in it and I was like, I don't want to freaking go. And it felt like I was clutching the walls to stay in my body. And I, I say this in, in my book, I kind of describe it like, you know, that scene from Get Out where Chris is kind of getting sucked in and they're taking over his body and he's like going to the dark place mm-hmm. or the, the sunken place. Sunken. Yeah. That's what it felt like. I was seeing everybody getting further away and I was getting further away okay. wow. um, until I was not there. and flatline uh, and even you know because my husband was there and he said he was kind of helping me to breathe and telling me to stay in my body stay in my body but he could see me leaving even just looking in my eyes so according to the medical records it was another 30 minutes of cpr and oxygen and all the things to try to get me back and i came back or was sent back and they put me back into or again because they found that my heart there's a sac around your heart that's called the pericard- pericardium and it was filled with fluid and they didn't know where the fluid came from. And so they had to get me back in surgery, not only to, to drain that fluid, but to try to understand what happened. Is it blood? Is it fluid? Where is it coming from? And to, to, to see if there was something wrong with the, um, with the dissection repair. And it was pretty exploratory, like really trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, and so when I came back this time, And I woke up a day or two later. This time, all the tubes were still in in place because they were like, we're taking this so slow. Because all the other times, by the time I woke up or came to really realization, because it's a lot of morphine, that's a hell of a drug. Mm -hmm. Um, All the tubes were gone. So that's why I didn't necessarily remember and know that I had been through the thing. That this time they left everything in. And let me tell you, I had, I was intubated. So I had tube down my throat. I had, because I was intubated, therefore I couldn't eat. I had a tube in my stomach, so liquid diet. Because I couldn't move, I had a catheter, so I didn't have to go to the bathroom. 
And because of the fluid around my heart, I had a chest tube to make sure it was draining. So I like a freaking science experiment and I couldn't move. But the thing that pissed me off the worst is that I couldn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) And so side note, when people are just this whole thing with COVID, I'm like, you don't understand how uncomfortable it is to be intubated, Mm. to have a a tube that you rely on to give your lungs breath. To not know, and you know, they would take it out <clears throat> when they eventually took it out. I still sometimes had to have like the little oxygen tank next to me mm-hmm. just to feel mm-hmm. like I wasn't panicking, like I can breathe because breathing on my own was so difficult. Mm-hmm. That is nothing to play with, to not know if you can take your next breath. So that's just another side. Like, like no, you, people that are healthy and don't have health issues can't fathom the idea of being intubated and can't be that bad, like in the movies. Nah, no, bro. I know it's terrible. It has to be nah. absolutely terrible because I can't. I can barely handle a headache. So even just sitting here listening, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like oh my god, hats off. You know, it's Man. a childbirth. All the all the things. So all of it. <laughs> you can just imagine with this pandemic, I was like, oh, nope, going in lockdown. Y'all can deal with all of that. I'm a, I'll come back out when it's uh uh when things are better, which things are a little bit better now. So I take calculated risks and do all of the things. But anyway, side note. Um so yeah, I survived all of that. And some things that stood out to me is one, no one is in intensive care that long. The goal for most hospitals is to get people stabilized and out of intensive care because that's a high level of care and quite expensive, mm. but they couldn't move me. So 50 days in intensive care with nurses 24-7, and each time maybe you get one nurse for every two people when you're in intensive care, whereas in the, you know, the broader hospital, it may be one nurse for 10 people. So that's the difference in, in just the level of care and equipment and everything. So I knew all the nurses very well. And they had a stake in my survival. And I felt that every time they came into the room, the nurses, the doctors, even the cleaning woman, every time I had an episode, they would come in and be like, oh my God, we're so glad you're still here. Cause nobody thought I was going to make it. Yeah. I look at my medical chart. And at one point the ICU doctor said death is imminent for this patient. We can only try to make, you know, I forget what the rest he said in it, but that, those words reverberated to me like, Death is imminent. Ha ha, no, it ain't, bitch. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. you're good. <laughs> yeah, you're good. <laughs> okay, thank you. I am from Southside Chicago. No, but all, trust so, me, you um, have all the right to express yourself <laughs> how you feel. <laughs> Ashe. Yes. And so, you know, it's just, it's, and, have, and having doctors who very, you know, I'm talking about my, I'm not to put a a value system on what specialty of doctors, but the reality is ICU doctors, pulmonary doctors and heart doctors are some of the most wealthy, (laughs) but also some of the most, and and particularly the hospital that I was in have to be some of the most Mm well-trained to operate on a heart or, you know, some of those major functions well-trained, very scientific. And I had doctors coming in like, you're a freaking miracle. And I don't understand what kept happening and how you keep coming back Mm. and how you aren't losing. They expected me. They told my husband, even after the first surgery, she might have learning disabilities, mental disabilities. She might have physical disabilities. 
I ain't who I was before, but I don't have any major, major disabilities. You know what I'm saying? Like, no. And all of that, I say, I say to my ancestors, because the strength that got me through this is the same strength that got them through the things that they had to experience. So they was like, we're lending all of this to you. Stop tripping. And, um, and so I'm thankful that experience just was like, um, a supernova change event for me. And, you know, I'm, I, my mental numerology, I was in a year nine, which are endings and death. Um, approaching, I got out of the hospital, what was it, December 8th, December 9th, and then by December 23rd, which is my birthday, I turned um, 46 and entered the year one. So it was like, my ending was for real. <laughs> like all of how you used to roll, playing small and um, not realizing your power and your gifts as a black woman, not standing in that that shit gotta go. You gotta move forward with a different life now. And you know, it's been five years, almost five years, it'll be five years in October, and it's been step by step, but I wouldn't change that experience. I mean, you know, it's not great, you know, whatever. Dang, ancestors, most high, could we have done this in a different way? Less traumatic, but okay, get it. I get it. I was hard hit. <laughs> so <laughs> but like okay, let's roll with this, let's do this. What what is this teaching me? What is this? What is this that's for me and for other people? Because when I did the research, very few people, obviously, aortic dissection, but in terms of Black women dying from heart disease, 50,000 every year. Mm-hmm. And those are just the ones that we can clearly identify what the, what the issue was. <clears throat> and I talk about this in the book. To me, that said that there is something, a pain that our ancestral mothers that we're being called to re- to resolve now, to bring some resolution to, to bring some healing to. Yeah. And that's where I went in deep to understand and trace back, how did I end up almost in the morgue? Where did this start? It didn't start with me. Okay, my mother dealt with stuff. Who passed away from a sudden heart seizures back in 2006? Mm-hmm. Okay, what about her mother? What about all of my ancestral mothers and the heartache that they've experienced what is it that they're all teaching me? Because they were all there like, nah, you, you're not coming back here with us right now. You need some, to do some work. So that was kind of the premise of my book is to understand this event that happened to me and what, what did it mean that was bigger than me? What did it mean from my ancestral lineages? What did it mean that, of something that I could share with other Black women so they didn't have to go through what I went through but still get the lessons without getting my pain? And so that's been the work that was the book that has been the work since then with my website and holding events. I actually have a few more books that are in the work. Some are anthologies with other women right now. Um, And one is a follow up on my first book because healing doesn't stop. It's a spiral. I have learned more now since publishing the first book that I can bring greater context to. But I can go on and on. So I'm going to pause. You can actually ask a question and interject. (laughs) (laughs) No, trust me. Well, I guess I wanted to ask, like, every time you checked out, uh, like, did you go somewhere? Like, you talked about I was sent back. Um, Like, what was that experience? Or was it just blackout and then you're back here again? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what is that? like? The reality is I'm still unpacking it. And I've done some 
you know, when I looked into these um, near-death experiences, right, uh-huh. I found this one um, article and series, I don't remember what it was, that basically said a lot of times when people have these experiences, all of the medical interventions make it difficult to remember. Mm-hmm. All of the morphine and the anesthesia and all those things. And I kind of felt that it took about six months before my mind could operate at the capacity that I was accustomed to, to really get all of that out of my system, all the morphine. Mm. So, but at the same time, I vividly remember what I thought were hallucinations. Mm. <laughs> and I'm laughing because some of them were hilarious. Like I was awake and having the hallucinations. Like I had some friends that would come to visit me. And somehow in my mind, when the nurses came in, they weren't actually nurses. They were my friends in disguise because mm-hmm. pe- they wouldn't let them come visit me. So they had to disguise themselves. And there was at one point when I asked one of the nurses, can I see your ID? And I looked at the ID and I looked at my husband and I was like, see, this ain't her. <laughs> I was fully awake, but I really believed it. So I'm like, I'm not going to discount all those things that I was seeing and experiencing as hallucinations, but just my mind is trying to figure out what to do with all of the stuff. Yeah. Um, but I do very, dis- I, I don't have a memory, a clear memory of that, what happened where I was on that other side, but I get a very clear, and I talk about this in book, a very clear feeling, you know, how, when you were a little kid and you might be outside playing with your cousins or with friends on the block and your mama in the kitchen and she hear you cause you cussing or cutting up or doing something and you get called in the house and told to act like you got some damn sense and represent her pro- properly and going back outside and play. That's what it felt like. That's why I kept saying I got sent back because it felt like I got snatched up, told to get my shit together and sent back. And why did it happen three times? Cause I'm stubborn as F dude. I was in the <laughs> hospital. I can't even barely think straight. And I'm on my iPad trying to order Uber Eats for my son for dinner because I got to make sure he eats dinner, even though it's a lot of other grown people around that can just take care of that. I was determined I was going to be the one to order the dinner. Like I still wasn't, I wasn't releasing and surrendering in between. And uh, I was going to ask like why, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask like, you know why you kept going back and being said there was something you were stubborn about clearly um and then apparently you you learned and- yeah <laughs> and you know and still learning because surrendering is an ongoing process when you're used to foraging ahead or controlling things or doing things because it got to be done like you know this wasn't one that i could do i was in there i told the nurse I think I need some dialysis. Or you, can you order that for me? <laughs> like, this is not the time to be the boss bitch, okay? <laughs> so, you know, if I was like in the ancestor realm looking at me, I'd be like, what the hell is she doing? <laughs> you need to talk to her again. Come here. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> But I can definitely, you know, grasp that visualization of what you're explaining, you know, having to be disciplined or at least knowing how to notice some things. I I could say personally, I think I have, I've noticed how to kind of stay out of trouble or I listen to them pretty good. And I, 
yeah. I can say that. Um, it even led me to leave Mississippi with like $400 and like, sorry, just go and get out of here. <laughs> you got you got to get out of here though you know so mm -hmm. it um it's amazing to to hear it just to hear like i said i still can't even think about how you made it all the way through i'm sitting here like all right i'm talking to her so she survived it but during this story is <laughs> like why is there like i don't think she's gonna make it well she's here she made it so <laughs> you know <laughs> you know that's really how it's intense real. It is like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely. But it's magic. like the way you took it, you know, it's like, oh, there's a lesson. I'm supposed to learn a lesson from it. Okay. And versus like, oh, why me? And, and all of that stuff. Yeah. Cause my, my I guess my philosophy always was, or at some point evolved to this. There's no way if, if my divine right, and I don't care what religion you, you, you follow, we weren't created to suffer. Yeah. So if I'm suffering, it must have a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's my job to figure out what that is or the suffering going to keep trying to get my attention and I want this shit to stop. So let me go and get this lesson. And more importantly, honestly, once, you know, I got through things, <clears throat> There's no part of me that wanted my children to deal with this. Uh -huh. So this going to stop with me. Like I got to, what I got to do, what we got to do. Cause there's no way I want them to deal with any parts of either, whether it's a dissection or heart issues or any kind of major thing that causes you to have to, to reshift and rethink. Let me do that on behalf on for them, for all of the people that I'm genetically connected to. Let me, let me solve this thread of the, of the equation. Cause it's come up for me. So it's mine to do. Let me do my part in that. Otherwise. And again, I, I practice African spiritual tradition. And so that idea of reincarnation back through your bloodline, otherwise I'm going to come back in a few generations mm -hmm. and have to still deal with this shit. Mm -hmm. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> once I want to deal with some new things. We want to handle this now in this life. Yeah. yeah. It's like, once you understand reincarnation and karma, it's like you understand, like you go through life a whole, lot differently oh, <laughs> like yeah. i'm not trying to come back no mm -mm. like not with this thing i want to be dealing with like oh my god how do we get plants to grow bigger you know i want some <laughs> other issues to deal with yeah this. and i can tell from your energy that you're pretty much grounded in love even with you saying that one of your your things was you still wanted to order food for your son of course meaning of course you've centered of course off the love for yes. your 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 kids and your family and life in general was that something that you grew up with or were you did you grow up in the church or did you grow up you know i know i'm sure your parents saw it some of us are all different of course you could have mm -hmm. siblings and they still won't vibrate the same way you vibrate with love so what is one of the things that help you with staying grounded with that i think um I think it goes back to me from literally my conception. It was my purpose. Um, my brother, I had three older, four older siblings and only one brother. My brother, uh, my family was on a vacation in Indiana, um, outside of Chicago. They were the only black family there at a campground. And 
my brother drowned in a swimming pond surrounded by families and people. So it was a very suspicious accidental drowning in 1968. And so my parents, everybody was devastated. There was so much guilt and grief, like, why weren't we watching him? Why did my sister walk away when this little girl said, come, let me show you a doll? Like all of the things that people do when you lose a child that I can't even imagine losing a child. And then they wanted to have, well, I'll say my father wanted to have another baby. He wanted to have another son. He wanted to be able to give honor to my brother and, and, you know, try again, raise again, raise a son again. But what he got was Barbara. He got me, <laughs> which is why my name is Barbara Cecile Williams. That's my birth name. So that I would have the same initials as my brother, who was Bobby Charles Williams. And so I literally was born out of this need to love that child that they lost. Now, with that came a lot of guilt for myself because I'm like, damn, somebody had to die for me to come here. So I had to deal with a lot of that in the first 20, 30 years of my life, learning to love myself. Wow, that's precious. But coming in, that was the purpose. I realized, again, after a lot of therapy and a lot of things, that my purpose in coming into my family was to bring love back into the house. Mm. And part of my challenge, I had to find my path back to loving myself. Because a lot of years I had major depression. I did not love myself. I would argue that even when this happened, I didn't know how to love myself. And that's been part of the challenge that I've been given is you got to learn how to love yourself because that's the beginning of everything. <clears throat> and, um, and so, yeah, that's my foundation. And then how do I keep that alive is doing things. So it's so weirdly simple but also so hard to do, doing things that I love to do. Doing things that bring me joy. Showing and expressing love to others. Now, this is a hard one. Without expressing, without expecting a certain condition of love back. Meaning, I might have certain needs, but someone's capacity to love me in the way that I need just may not be there. Right. They don't know how to do that. But understand that and not saying that I need to withhold my love because they don't know how to love me the way I need to. That's okay. I can just radiate love. It's taken a lot, including this experience, for me to be able to accept that and to practice that as much as I can. And I say as much as I can because if I was done, I probably wouldn't be anymore. I would just like levitate off into the space because I wouldn't need human experiences anymore. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Everything is based on that foundation of love and helping learning to love myself, learning to express and radiate love and anything that I can do to help other people realize how to love themselves, especially black women, because between racism and sexism, we're at the bottom of every, of everything and have been told that we're not worthy of love, we're not worthy of all of these things and have internalized that in some ways. But society can never be what it can be until, in my opinion, Black women learn to love ourselves, embrace our power, and do the things that we do for our communities and our families. And then we can command, actually, no, you're gonna treat me like this because I treat me like this. And then it kind of spreads from there. 
because I feel like we're in a shit show because the earth is like, did y'all know I was the original black woman and y'all are not treating me well? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the ethers out there in in, in space is like, do y'all know y'all all all exist in the womb of the, uh, of, you know, we want to go into Egyptian, um, and you probably can quote it better than me, like some of the Egyptian goddesses, whether it's Maat or Neb, like we exist, the idea of the the power of the original woman on this planet of of black women, period, cannot be uh, minimized. And the fact that we have not been honored, we haven't honored ourselves in the way that is required. And so society hasn't honored us in that way. And, you know, society is a shit show right now. So in my opinion, I got to do the work for me, heal me, help sisters heal, meaning black women, help other women heal, and then we can get some balance to this place. And you but also still helping. Let me how love me. You're helping black men heal, trust me, as well. Because, man, that story, yeah, you got to stop complaining about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, <laughs> that's a very, very thing. It's like, yo, no, don't complain about nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get it done, get it done. And get it's it done, funny cause... that you mentioned, I guess, as far as one of the things that sent us into the history dive of my father's side is that his father amazing swimmer mysteriously died when he was two years old and that was been one of the things that like all right i gotta learn about this guy and then just Mm -hmm. at least learn from you know go from there and figure out some things but yeah that's exactly yeah it's definitely an energy there and it may not have, of course, it was there as far as when they lost him then. But mm-hmm. even now, in my life, it's something that I've always been attracted to, at least knowing, you know, more about my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's definitely a, 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 some type of energy connection dealing with, you know, the blood. I line. agree. Yeah, something it's that, something about the water. It's almost, and, you know, I haven't. I'm off the cuff right now. I'm not, I mean, all of it's been off the cuff, but I haven't really clarified what it is, but there's something with, it's almost like my brother was sacrificed to the water, but not really. That's not the right word. Like there's something energetically with the the water and drowning and, and sons. Mm. That's how I was like, I haven't worked it all out, but there's a connection there that I'm, I'm trying to understand and, you know, I know it'll probably come to me in the middle of the night sometime in a dream. And then we'll be like, oh, that's what that meant. <laughs> um, and behind my grandfather's death was created um, the family rule, never go fishing on a Sunday. Wow. Which had, as you know, growing up as an adult, and this was, you know, out of respect for my grandmother, um, who's passed now. But that was something that, you know, was taught to us. It was something that it didn't quite make enough sense mm-hmm. then because as kids, we still snuck off and went fishing, but we didn't quite understand it. And we knew he died going fishing. But as kids growing up, that was the only story or that was the only connection there. Mm-hmm. So we received a family myth of fear that was handed in a generation of don't go fishing on a Sunday or it's 
and that's that wasn't the case mm-hmm. and it was you know it's it's been a a, a learning process and a, a opening up it, it opens your brain up to kind of realize and we're all lifeguards or use we my my siblings there's five of us we all were once upon a time uh certified lifeguards wow see your mama wasn't playing i see yeah <laughs> so she's like y'all gonna get up out of here you're gonna do some things you're gonna explore uh-oh you froze up oh, <laughs> are you there uh-oh we're frozen Shoot. maybe it's not our internet oh you there yep. we're back we're back okay we're back I told you, I just freeze when I see it happen. I just stay right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But um, that was one of the, yeah, she did make sure as far as we're um, lifeguards. And something, like I said, she came to visit last year. Just turned 70 this year, but she swam in the pool with us here. You know, so that's something that, you know, we definitely, and yes, Black people swimming is a stereotype. I was a lifeguard, yeah. you know, in the South, barely had to save one or two kids. You know, no, that's just a stereotype. All the kids swim real good. They, for a dollar, they go to the pool, they're exposed to water. <laughs> yeah. But at least used to, mm. used to be able to. Mm-hmm. City pools are now, a lot of them, I think, are closed. In mm-hmm. that in particular city, that's another conversation as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Access to things. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's quite a, you know, it's quite a mystery. Some of the powers that our DNA hold, traumas that it holds, the the like I say, even for you to be able to live and understand and experience and kind of be able to become aware of what's going on on this in particular rock. A lot of us are becoming more and more aware of what's going on on earth and the connection mm-hmm. between like mother earth and everything mm-hmm. so that's something that i hope a lot of people do grab from this episode and kind of grab from the podcast and we one of the reasons we have a platform is to kind of share a lot of energy learn from really both all kinds of the you know everybody of the world but yep we're definitely a lot of people are definitely asking questions and want to know this connection with, you know, mind, body, and soul. Absolutely. And how to use the magic that, that, you know, we've been lied about. Cause it's definitely like, come on, look what we survived globally. Yeah. yeah. Look what we've survived. We still here. Yeah. We still here. Like that's some biblical. <laughs> Yeah. I'm gonna just talk how I talk. That's some biblical shit. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. I'm telling you. It is. Like what? And something you said reminds me, and it's like, dude, I swear we got some common ancestors somewhere. In my book, one of the chapters, I talk about plantation proverbs. Mm. And it's these phrases that we grew up hearing from our parents that they heard from their parents that they heard from their parents that started on the freaking plantations that have a completely different context and meaning now some not so beneficial because we don't need that. And you know, like one of them I talk about was this idea of um, this is a common one. 
when you black, you got to work twice as hard to get half as far. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely, I mean, it's still absolutely true, but I talk about what that did to me mentally, that pressure that that put placed on me, even, you know, not that long before I had the aortic dissection, this idea is every time I walk into this corporate job and I'm the only black person, I'm busting my ass. I'm doing the work. I'm coming home. I got my husband taking care of the kids. I'm coming home and putting in more work till three o'clock in the morning. And this white boy is going to get a promotion and a raise. And all he did was repeat the same shit somebody else said Mm. in the right room with the right people. And, you know, I'm not saying that they all are like that, but that is, you know, that's the common thread. I'm literally putting in the work. So it's not, I had to learn, is it the hard work or do I just need to be more strategic or to actually be successful? Or do I just take a step back and say, maybe I don't give my brilliance to corporate America anymore. And I, you know, live within smaller means and do something else. So those were a lot of the decisions I had to make, but that idea of, I literally got to work twice as hard to get half as far gave me so much pressure and had me working so hard. And, you know, it just wasn't beneficial for me anymore at that point, at this point in our lives. And there are a few other things like that, but that, that don't go fishing on a Sunday, man, that's another plantation proverb. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, there's the more general ones, but then there are ones that are very specific to our families that, we got to flip them and reframe them and do something different. They were trying to give it to us out of love, out of, you know, want, not wanting us to suffer the same things that they suffered. So the good intentions were there. It's eventually it didn't serve that intention that they wanted. And so we got to take ownership of those and do different things with them. Before we get ready to close it out, um, would you like to share anything as far as about your upcoming projects links um special message that you like and we always invite everybody out and we always say hey if you're ever in la come by sit in with us and have an in-studio um recording session as well i will keep that in mind because man like i said my my daughter lives in in la i'll figure out where exactly eventually (laughs) yeah we're in downtown la yeah all i know is i went to downtown la to this restaurant she took us to perch Mm. Are you familiar with that? That one, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've had. I haven't been there, but I've heard of it. It was freaking dope. It was like on the rooftop. Like you got to take some secret pathway to get up to the elevators, up through the elevator. It was okay. It was beautiful. So that's my memory of downtown LA. (laughs) It's um, constantly changing. They're actually cleaning up for the Super Bowl, and that's a whole different conversation as well. That's man, we've we've seen a a homeless you know encampment basically that's been there since before since we moved before here. we moved here yeah and they just cleaned it up for the first time and it's like wow but Clean we it don't up know and then get what with those people that's a good question well they some of them are across them, the street well some of them they <laughs> on the gave, sidewalk yeah they gave them vouchers to hotels but these are temporary every time they clean it up they it's, always yeah, do something temporary that's yeah. not really helping long term so that's yeah, that's that but you're saying uh i guess give them links to you or tell them about your your book yes yeah, so um my website is beautifulpowerfullove.com okay my instagram is beautiful underscore love wait no <laughs> beautiful underscore powerful underscore love so beautiful powerful love you just got to put the little underscore in between each one okay. and same thing for my facebook page 
um, to keep track. You know, I have my book. I actually, so the book I published in 2019 and I just relaunched it last year along with the audio book because that is how a lot of people want to consume content and consume books. And, you know, depending on where you are, it can be a heavy read and just listening to it is much easier. And when I talk about in the book, one of the things I do is I offer kind of a framework for working through um, to becoming aware of who you are and working through some of those ancestral things. Um, And I call it the work. And so some of the things in there are like meditations or visualizations, and that's much easier to hear. And a lot of it has to do with journaling and things like that. And so the audio book is there, ebook, print book. I have a workbook that'll come out. It's actually available for pre-order now, but I'll be actually releasing it in April. Um, And then, of course, swag, because if you go on a walk, you got to be able to drink your Black women are dope as fuck water bottle, Um, (laughs) which is the hashtag, you know, hashtag Black women are dope as fuck, like, or AF, I'll say that. So there's swag on there that uh, that reflects that, because, again, everything is about remembering who we are, remembering who we are and from which we came and literally the power that we have to change our lives and to change the world. And uh, so it's beautiful, powerful love for all of the information, website, Instagram, and Facebook. And I will say on my Instagram, the link that I have there is a link tree. Mm. I am running to be... (laughs) I don't think I I shared this with you before, but it's happened in the last couple of weeks. I am running to be Inked Magazine's cover girl for 2022 because I have this ink that means something to me. And I'm like, why not break some barriers? Because I would probably be, when I look at their past winners, first black person, the first fit, because I just turned 50. So, you know, when I turned 50 in December, a couple months ago, I was like, I'm doing all the things because I give no Fs anymore about what anybody thinks. So yeah. I'm running for that. And right now I'm number five in my group. Um, and it goes on until March 17th. And so you can vote daily by signing into Facebook or people can buy votes. Um, otherwise, you can only vote one time daily. And as we go further along, I'm going to definitely need those votes daily because I want to break some barriers. I want to have like a 50 year old big body black woman on the, on the cover of Inc. Magazine. That's what I want right now. <laughs> yes, so those listening vote. Vote, vote, vote. Yes. Uh, and like been... I said, the link is in my link tree on Instagram because it's a whole Inc. Magazine backslash forward slash thing, blah, 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 blah. Just easier to go to my Instagram to get it. Okay. And we'll actually put all of the stuff that she said on, on the description all the links. Um, I was curious, you mentioned audiobooks. We love audiobooks. I was just curious, do you read your audiobook? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. For those (laughs) trying to make audiobooks, from a listener's perspective, I love it when the author reads the book, because sometimes other they get other people to read their book and i'm like i want to hear it from you i don't want to hear it from another voice it was never even a consideration because one to your point sometimes voiceover actors don't even know how to pronounce a thing yeah and i'm like that is not how you say that why did they let that go in the recording yeah (laughs) or and because this is so much of my personal story yeah i had to do it and and i will tell you the process of recording the book I went through a whole nother level of healing because it's one thing to writing. It was a, was a, was a level. Then, you know, all of the edits and edits and edits and rewrites 
was another level. But reading that book and with the producer on the other end, so I'm like reading it one-on-one to another person, there were times when I'd have to be like, okay, we got to stop for the day because I was emotionally going back through all the things that I was talking about and Mm. reprocessing them. And then when you get the recording back and I had to listen to it, Mm. I got to listen to myself, tell my story (laughs) in detail. I can't just zone out. I got to hear when something's not right so I can correct it. I was like, wow, y'all really not playing with me, huh? Okay. You know, make sure I got this. (laughs) (laughs) The building process. Yeah. So I'm thankful for all of it, but thank you for asking. Cause that was, that was a labor of love, but one that I felt was necessary to get it to as many people as possible. Yeah. And it looks like you helped yourself with your book. <laughs> See, your mm-hmm. book was just amazing. That was what it was for. for first and foremost, exactly. it was for my healing. Yeah. We're truly, truly grateful to even just be thank here you. with you and to have you here yeah. on this earth right now to have this conversation you. with you. We Thank de- you. We definitely. It's just, it's a, it's a very, very um, wild experience to just talk to somebody like you. Yeah, so. And to have a positive nice. energy the, about it. That as well. As well the the super positive yeah. energy. Um, yeah. Definitely got to have you back because I know that I wanted to ask you about um, diet after everything, mm-hmm. after the, the, um, procedures and everything mm-hmm. changes and stuff so we have a lot that's to, really probably like stuff like that and the whole after is a lot of what i'm addressing in the second book okay. because mm-hmm. like it's just i mean not just diet kind of that but also the revelations and the understanding because that was like the, uh, the beginning like i didn't like oh, okay i'm good i've all i've healed i've evolved no like nah you got some more stuff to do and that, you know, it's worth sharing with people. So, yeah, I'd definitely love to be back. Yeah, And, we'd and love hopefully to, I'll be in L.A. sometime this year. And yeah. we'd love to learn that from you without having to, you know, go through the experience as well. That's just yes. being honest. Yes, we definitely love to. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're listening. <laughs> Listen, I'm yeah. like, I took the hit already. We're going we gonna to expand this so no, nobody else got to take the hit. Yeah. And I'm convinced that somewhere along the way we are relatives. So <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a, definitely a big taken. Mississippi thing. Yeah. It's like, hey, make sure you do your research on who you're dating. So you know. Dude, hey. Okay. Yeah. A brief squirrel moment. That was the thing I was going to with my father with his dementia. The stories he told, like, you know, we always hear about, you know, all of, everybody doing everybody and and you know, like the back speakeasies, you know, yeah, color yeah. purple type scenarios. But for the first time, he described how common interracial relationships were. That's not a picture that's very clearly painted for us. It always seems mm. like it's something that's like done in the back and, the, and, you know, like not really, really done. Like he said the amount of white men who wanted any black women they could get, mm-hmm. like really not just lusting after them. And so that idea of how did some of these families get the land? Mm. Mm sisters did what they needed to do <laughs> i'm just saying okay. that's a possibility that's you know, a maybe not in all the cases but yeah that's a conversation to look at because even with me on my father's side my great grandfather yes he's he's white and grew up in oxford but we can't go and have i don't i couldn't point you to any of my relatives 
in that line. But mm-hmm. my grandmother, she's mixed, and you know, it comes down from there. But that makes a lot of sense now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which you know, in that case, he might have got disowned by the rest of them. Possibly. Possibly. There's a that was that another hush that we have to learn about. Yeah. Because we got to poke around. Hey, what happened there? Who is this? What do mm-hmm. they do? That, yeah, another one of those. So, I have a family reunion. I may have to actually go. The first time my father's side is having a family reunion in I don't know, like 30 plus years. Wow. But um, it's in July of this year. And I was trying to figure out because like my son graduates from high school and like there's a lot going on. I'm like, but I might need to go because it's really hard to poke around without poking around in person. Yeah. 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 Especially Mississippi because their records, you know. Oh my gosh, the whole courthouse burned down. We no longer have those records anymore. Mm. But you got to go ask some old folks some stuff. Yeah. 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 And most of them are going to probably tell you, yeah, yeah, some Indian and he's Native American, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is what, what's, what was the, the, the tribe that's there? Choctaw, I think. Choctaw, Choctaw Chickasaw, Chickasaw um, Cherokee. Mm-hmm. That goes into, I think, over into Georgia, Georgia, slides over into Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. But another conversation. And I'm telling you, it's yes, going to be yes, great. Yes. It'll be great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to all of the listeners that's listening and supporting. And for the podcast, you can find us at AmericanGypsy.com. Um, and also, you can find our merch, Consistent Self Improvement um, t shirts, uh, mugs, um, a lot of different products um at luamlee.com and all of this would be in the description so you don't have to worry about remembering it along with the most likely a link or some links in the website that takes you to my music k-l-a-c-c-i-k c-a-r-p-e-n-t-a classic carpenter on spotify itunes title um all major platforms and that's it Thank everybody for listening. Thank you again, Barbara. And consistent self-improvement to everyone. And we'll see you tomorrow. Peace. Peace. Peace.